So John chapter 5, and we're going to read from verse 1 to 18. After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which was five, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Just so far in God's word. Uh, we've had a bit of a break um, in the Gospel of John for a few weeks. Uh, I've been trying to preach consecutively through it with mild breaks and caveats. But it's fine. Uh, we pick up sort of in a new section here. And what we are looking at today is the, the third miracle that John records. And just to remind you and those of you who don't know perhaps, that in the Gospel of John, the whole Gospel, John only records seven miracles that Jesus does. He only writes seven down. And he doesn't call them miracles. In fact, he calls them signs. Every time he speaks of a miracle that Jesus does, he calls it a sign. Because to him, to John, the, the writer of this gospel, he is interested in a very particular thing. He has one purpose in writing it. And out of all the things Jesus did, out of all the miracles he performed and all the teaching that he gave, he records exactly what he records, that you might believe that he is the Son of God. He records all of his miracles, just seven of them. Because each one of those miracles shows a different aspect of who he is and why he has come. The first two miracles that we have really looked at is the turning of water into wine. The very first miracle he does at Cana. And that signified the, the changing of times. That the new was coming and the old was passing away. The, the water that he turned into wine were these great big jugs used for purification rites in the Jewish uh, religion. And he turned it into wine, a symbol of the new covenant. A symbol of what was coming and what was changing as he did. The second miracle we see was the, the healing of a centurion's uh, child. Far away, with just a simple word. Showing that he has got power over anything. That when he speaks, things happen. And he can be trusted whether he is there or not. And so we come to this miracle today and 
And he has two interesting interactions in our text here. He has an interaction with obviously the, the invalid, the man who has been sitting by this pool for 38 years. And then he has interactions with obviously the Pharisees, or indirectly he has interactions with them, which he will have many of as he goes about his ministry. And each interaction shows a different aspect of, of the conflict that we have with coming to Jesus. We have a lot of things vying for our attention, a lot of things that seek to, to take our, uh, our well, attention. Sure, I used that word twice. That's bad preaching. You should never do that. Sometimes we, we always think that what works should always be from God. That the ends justify the means. That, for instance, if I want to be healed and I can get healed, that whatever way I use to get healed, well, God must approve of. Correct? Because surely God wants people to be healed. In fact, in the first aspect of the story, we see that displayed perfectly. Now, if you are a very vigilant person and you have your Bible in front of you, I want you to notice that our verses go from verse 3 to verse 5 here in this chapter. Did you notice that? Probably not, right? Because, I mean, who looks at the verses? So what happened to verse 4? Well, I need to make a note up front here. In the King James Version, there's an ending of verse 3 and verse 4 that goes like this. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole, or whatsoever disease he had. So the King James Version records something that our modern translations don't. Now, we need to talk about that. Why don't our modern translations have this verse? For a very good reason. It probably wasn't in the original. In fact, it's definitely not in the original. How do we know that? Well, we we have something called textual criticism today. We have had 2,000 years, right, since the scriptures were written or finished. And since then, we have thousands upon thousands upon hundreds of thousands of copies, right, of the original texts. And we have generally two major sets We've got a set of texts from about the year 500 to 1500. That's the largest group of texts. Right? And there are thousands and thousands of those that we used to compare when we translate things. The earliest texts we have, and we have texts dating to the very beginning of the second century, those are generally seen as the most reliable. I mean, obviously, right? The earlier texts should be more reliable than the later one. So what this probably was, was a textual note. That someone in a later edition added something that was a culturally known thing, and then somewhere somewhere in the translation, someone slipped it in. And then they just carried on translating it that way. So a lot of later texts have the verses like the King James Version does, but none of the earlier texts. So it becomes very easy to see what doesn't belong. Right? That's the wonder of our translation process, is that the better we get at it, the easier it becomes to see what should and shouldn't be there. And of all the things we lose, well, we lose nothing major. So in case you're wondering, can you trust the King James Version? Of course you can. It still has the gospel, it still has the truth, it has the wonders of God's word. The differences are minor. Like, yeah, we lose a cultural note on a story that we understand with or without it. But it does add a a different aspect to it. That she has this man waiting for 38 years because they have a myth, they have a story that an angel comes down from heaven and stirs the waters. Now there's three possibilities. An angel actually does come down and stir the water. 
I mean, that's a distinct possibility. And that whoever climbs in first is healed, like some weird sort of lottery. So that's possible. However, it doesn't seem to be God-ordained. And in fact, nowhere in the scriptures do we see God healing like that. So if it is supernatural, it is definitely not an angel, but a false miracle. He used to deceive people, and we'll talk about that in a second. Two, it's probably a natural phenomenon, maybe. I mean, we, we have this all the time, right? Underwater springs, that's still water, you know, like natural jacuzzis. And that's most probably what it is. And therefore, the effect could be a placebo effect. You know, someone hoping so much for something that the moment they get in, they, they seem to get better. I mean, we do it all the time. In fact, that's how most of these false teachers do their miracles. They play to an audience. They play to their hopes and to their desires. They tell them they can be healed, so they believe it so much well, that they appear to get better. Well, for a time. It's a placebo effect. You want it so much that it happens or appears to happen. And lastly, well, nothing happens. It's just a myth. They believe in a nonsense story. Now here's where it sort of comes down to us. This guy is so desperate. These people lying there are so desperate, they are willing to believe anything. They are willing to trust anything as long as it gives them their heart's desire. Heal me and I will follow you. Do to me what I want and and I will be yours. Even to the point where they believe whatever is stirring this pool must be something that can aid them. And here comes our first problem, our first obstacle to belief in Jesus, is that an attitude that says, the ends justify the means, whatever gets me to my wanted desire, well, I will follow, is ultimately a heart that is not ready to accept Jesus. Jesus doesn't just want the end, he wants the means, he wants the whole thing. There's a common attribute that what you are one with, you are one too. In the modern church, we've had many different movements, and one of them was called the seeker-sensitive movement, where for a, while, for a while all churches were very concerned with getting unchurched people into the church. And in order to do that, they used to take surveys. They would go around the neighborhood with clipboards and with surveys. Of what, what would make you come to church? I don't know if you thought about that. You know, I don't know what you think of church, and where if you guess yet today, maybe you think it's boring. Maybe you'd come to church, you know, if there was like a comedian who did preaching. By the way, and I can be a comedian, no, I can't really. You know, I'd have a laugh at my jokes. Or, or perhaps you'd come to church, it was a bit more lively, a bit more exciting. You know, maybe we should get some tigers and do like a magic show. You laugh. <laughs> These are the kind of things they did. Because in order to get people into the church, they had to cater to their felt needs, to their base, lowest common denominator. And so church services began to come a bit strange. You had preachers jumping on trampolines, preaching sermons, because, well, you know, truth is flexible. I'm not joking, that's actually what he preached on. You had uh, people offering all sorts of incentives, putting McDonald's in churches, because, I mean, who doesn't want to listen to a sermon while eating a Big Mac? I mean, that would be so much better. I was thinking, as I was following the baptismal font, that we could put some jets in and put a little seat in, and we could have a jacuzzi. You know, not a natural one, but an unnatural one. The problem with that, and what clearly became clear, is that nobody really wanted to come to church to listen to the Word of God. Because, I mean, why would a worldly person want to do that? This book is like sandpaper in your ears. 
to someone who doesn't love Jesus Christ? Why would you want to hear about sin and hell and salvation? Why would you want to hear about the deep things of God if they didn't interest you? And so churches began to play that down. They began to talk less and less about Jesus, less and less about sin and holiness, and more about what felt good to you. More about what tickled your ears and made you walk out here with a smile on your face. And they realized very quickly that though they filled their churches, they did not fill them with Christians. And in order to keep those people there, to keep giving them the same thing over and over and over again. Because what they won them with, they won them to. And they did not win them to Jesus. There's always a, a stark difference. That when we compromise with our values, when we turn to things other than Jesus Christ and his gospel to win people, we ultimately do not win them to Christ. Imagine Jesus had gone up to this man, this man who had waited 38 years and even complained. He just couldn't get to the pool in time. Every time he tried, somebody else snuck in front of him. And Jesus said, it's fine. Next time it stirs, I'll push you in. Would, Would that have been right? And imagine he did get healed. Imagine he came out of the water walking miraculously. Do you think he would have followed Christ? Or would he have praised the angel of the pool? Jesus knows the deepest needs of our hearts. And this man's primary need is not to be healed. It is to know his Savior. He does heal him because Jesus always does that. That's why he's wonderful. There's not a man, woman, or child that Jesus did not meet who he did not help. And he could do it. And so the first thing he says to this man is, do you want to be healed? It's an obvious question. In fact, it's there in the narrative to heighten the expectation of a miracle. Of course he wants to be healed. So Jesus commands, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And he does. And with every other healing, there's a point we have to stop and just marvel at Jesus. Marvel at the God who heals. Jesus who speaks and things happen. And even the very nature of the world is undone. Because he is Lord of all the world. A man who has not been able to walk, can walk. A wonderful, incredible thing. So wonderful that it defies words. But even more wonderful is that Jesus finds that man later and tells him even more. I see that you are well. Sin no more. He has a spiritual message for a withered soul. The healing is a means to an end. And the healing is so that he might clearly see that Jesus is who he is. That he is God, that he has authority to take sickness away. And he tells him of a spiritual condition worse than being an invalid. Sin. Sin that clings closely to a heart is worse than any physical disease we could possibly get. Sin is of eternal consequence. Physical things are of the now. That is why healing is, is never the final measure. Healing is, is never wholly what we should want from God. I remember reading in a, a novel once, and uh, sure, this is like a long illustration, so I'll cut it down very short. In the novel, the, the guy who's a biblical archaeologist, sure, that's a very exciting story. He finds the bronze serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness. 
Not that it is exists any longer. It's probably like long ago destroyed. But he finds it, right? And if you know that story in Leviticus, Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the desert as God commanded him, and all the people who looked at it who had been afflicted by snake bites were healed. And this man who discovered it, his wife is now dying in hospital. So a colleague of his brings him this bronze serpent and says, well, don't you believe this can heal her? And he says he doesn't want it. And this colleague Conan said, but if you believe it can heal her, and it can, why not just take the chance? And he says he will not. Because he will not put his faith in an object, but only in God. That even if she were to be healed by an object like this, he would not want it at the expense of his faith. That's a harsh message all in itself. But it warns us against mysticism in our hearts. It warns us against trusting in esoteric things rather than God. We are so prone to do that. We live in an age of constant, constant deception. Where everybody is seeking to vie for attention. We have false prophets performing false wonders and miracles. We have apparently visions of the Virgin Mary appearing in all different places of the world, healing people. We have people who pray to saints and kiss their crosses, hoping that it will do something for them. There's only faith in Christ that saves, that is necessary. We do not trust in empty things, even if they could give us our heart's desire. Because Christ is the goal. That's the first thing. And, and to be honest, that's the secondary message of this story. The first distraction is that we are so prone to trust in these insidious things. Kissing the feet of statues, for instance. My own friend, he, he took a photo when he was in Rome of a statue of St. Peter. And the toes of the statue are so worn away from people touching them and kissing them that he had to take a photo because it broke his heart so much. That's idolatry. Surely Peter didn't want that. A statue made of him that people might touch his toes and hope for miracles or for luck or for whatever they want. We are prone to trust those things when we should not. And trust only in Jesus alone. The secondary and and more powerful part of this story is that again reveals the Pharisees' hearts. This man has been healed, he's taken up his mat and he's walking. I mean, that's a miracle. Imagine that happens here. Wouldn't you be bowled over? Wouldn't you be excited? Wouldn't you want to go up to the guy and say, whoa, let me check out your legs, man. Check out those, maybe that's a bit weird. (laughs) Check out those tendons, sure. No, that's strange. But you'd be excited about it, wouldn't you? And especially if you're a religious leader, like a miracle just happened. You know, you should be excited about that. But of course they're not. It took place on the wrong day for them. It happened on the Sabbath. And, and this is a recurring thing in, throughout the Gospels. Jesus heals on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are very miff about it. How could you heal on this day of all days? In fact, they don't even care about the healing. They're just concerned that the guy's carrying his mat with him, his bed. Like, how can you be carrying your bed on the Sabbath? Do you not know that the Sabbath is a day of rest? In fact, where this fits in is in order to keep the Sabbath rule, uh, the Jews made what they call the 40 minus 1 rules of things you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath. And one of them included carrying things like a bed. And so to them, this was unconscionable. 
you're, you're breaking, well, not really the law of God, but their own law by doing this. How can you, you do such a thing? In fact, they want to know who did this. Tell us his name. And he initially doesn't, but later he tells them. It's Jesus. And they hate Jesus so much they want to kill him. They, they want to destroy him. Because he does these things in a time and a manner in which they do not approve of. The second thing that robs our attention from Jesus Christ and seeing who he is is empty, worthless tradition. Religion that cannot save. The story of the prodigal son is always a wonderful one. And we all know it, right? The son who goes far away and spends all his father's earnings. He goes and spends them on prostitutes and wild living. And eventually he comes to his senses and he comes home. And his dad greets him and throws him a feast. Do you know that story is not about the younger son? It never was. In fact, we're told very clearly in the story he has two sons. And the end of the story is the saddest part. The younger son has come home and a feast is thrown for him. But the older son looks at the feast, looks at his younger son and refuses to go in and celebrate. He refuses and he says to his dad, Dad, I've been faithful for so long and you've given me nothing. But you gave him everything. And the story ends with the father pleading, please come in. This brother of yours was dead and is now alive, was lost and is found. It's underscoring the story there because the Pharisees are the older son. They show by their hearts that, that though they claim to love God, they never loved God. They only wanted his things. They are faithful only because they think they will get something from him. They will not rejoice in the grace of God. They will not see his love. They will not come into the feast because they are more lost even than the younger son. Even though they think they are home. They have trusted in empty, worthless things that cannot save. Tradition that has no value. Man-made things that they have set off from God. That is the sad state of affairs to be in. And it's only underscored that when they actually see God working, they cannot see it. They refuse to see it because their tradition has blinded them. That is the tragedy of the story, that a man is healed miraculously by Jesus, and all they can see is the day that it happened on, and nothing else. Traditions like this are just as insidious as false teaching, in fact, sometimes even worse. There are things you can grow up with, things that you can assume, things that you might have held true for all your life, but ultimately prove empty. Tradition is, is so insidious because it started off very good, and now it's become something very bad. That, that's the problem with all tradition. Uh, it starts off well. Like, I mean, even the Sabbath thing started off well. God said, observe the Sabbath, honor it. And so they thought, well, how might we do that? And instead of breaking the one law, they decided they were going to make a bunch of other laws to stop from even getting to that one law. Uh, I mean, a good motive, right? It's like saying, we don't want to go over this cliff, so we're going to build 40 barriers between us and the cliff. Isn't that a good thing? Well, it definitely sounds like a good thing. The problem is they counted the barriers as the cliff itself. 
So the moment you start saying, well, you can't cross that barrier because it's as though you fell off. They had forgotten the word of God and replaced it with their own. You get this in churches all the time. This is the danger of growing up in a Christian family, is that your faith is not your own, but that of your parents, or that of the pastor, or the duomini, or the teacher whom you had. That your, your faith is simply, well, whatever he said. Billy Graham passed away two weeks ago. You guys know Billy Graham? Old Billy. I knew him well, no, I didn't. Uh, he was a wonderful preacher of the Word of God, and and I remember something that disturbed me once. I went onto a, a ministry's website and they didn't have a statement of faith. They didn't have a statement of what they believed and why they believed. All they had was one sentence, we believe whatever Billy Graham said. Which sounds alright. I mean, why would Billy Graham be wrong? Well, sort of he was on a few things. Well, I think. But I mean, who am I? Uh, the, the problem with that statement is, that's the problem with tradition. When you place your trust in what a man says and not what God says. I am a fallible person. I make mistakes all the time. And though I'm a pastor called by the Lord, I am not God as to make laws. I'm not God that I can demand traditions. In fact, if you don't judge my words by the scriptures, well then your hearts are in the wrong place. In fact, every preacher and teacher who stands up and decides this is, or says this is God's word, needs to be judged by it. To see whether what they say is right or wrong. And more than that, you need to weigh up for yourself what you believe and what you don't. Your conscience needs to be captive to the word of God and not to empty tradition that someone said sometime and you believed. Such things are dangerous and shaky ground. They lead to the harshest of rebukes from Jesus. Jesus says some really disturbing things in the scriptures, but none more disturbing than to the Pharisees. Have you ever noticed that? To the, the prostitutes, he welcomes them with open, loving arms, with the gospel and with grace, to sinners and to tax collectors. I mean, you wouldn't even welcome a tax collector, maybe. I don't know. But he does. And he doesn't have a harsh word to them, just forgiveness. But to the Pharisees, he calls them snakes. He, he says the harshest of things, sons of hell, twice. They are empty tombs, whitewashed on the outside of dead men's bones inside. They look so nice, but they are dead. That is the danger of empty religion. That is religion for religion's sake. It's holding to a bunch of rules that you've forgotten where they came from. It's holding to tradition because tradition has always said these things. Instead of being washed by the word of Jesus Christ, seeing him for whom he is, and holding only to what he says. There's a simplicity in this text, and that's really the message he's trying to get home here. It's about the Pharisees. That's why at the end, when they confront him and they're persecuting him because of the Sabbath, Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I am working. That's a very goading statement to make. He says two things here that, that vastly disturb the Pharisees. The first is he calls God his father. Meaning, in their culture, if he is his son, then he is equal with God in authority. But more than that, 
He's bringing up even their aspect of the Sabbath that they got wrong. Remember how the Sabbath was instituted on the seventh day God rested. Right from all his work. Not that he needed to, but he did it as a model for us. That we need to rest. And so he's basically asking them, do you think God is still resting? Do you think he rested on the seventh day and then he just never took up his work again? Is that what you think of God? That such laws apply to him? That God cannot work on the Sabbath because he is somehow confined to your humanity? He's basically asking them, do you think God cannot heal on the Sabbath? And of course he can. My father is working. He is always working. He will always do what he will do whenever he wants to do it. And so will Jesus. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He made it. He can do what he likes with it. He honors it exactly the way it was meant to be honored. And he's able to do whatever he likes because he's equal in authority with his Father. This is a very explicit verse speaking to the nature of who Jesus is. He is God. And there's no misunderstanding because even the Jews understand that. And to them it is the most terrible, most blasphemous thing a man can say. That they are God. Hence why they want to kill him. And stone him. They will not come like this man who was healed. They will not follow like his disciples. Instead they will have him dead. And so the end of the story always underscores the only two reactions you can have to Jesus Christ. There's only two. You either accept who he is or you reject who he is. This man, this invalid... He accepts at the end. We, we see that. It's implied in the story. He knows who Jesus is and he follows. The Pharisees do not. They refuse to see. And the same question lies at our door today. Will you accept or reject him? Will you hold on to whatever mysticism or worldly traditions or empty religion that you have or will you turn to Jesus it's always the the story in fact we've often got it wrong in modern Christianity that the, the question is presented do you want to go to heaven or hell but that's not the question I mean it's a stupid question who would ever want to go to hell I mean at least hell is the Bible describes maybe some weird version of hell where it's a rock concert people might want to go to. I mean, the Bible doesn't mince words about hell. You'd have to be crazy to want to go there, where the worm does not die, where there's gnashing of teeth, where it's out of darkness and fire. I mean, no thank you, I'll take heaven, even if it's just a nice buffet. It's not the question. The question's always been, do you want Jesus or not? That's the decisive question. Because heaven is his home, The earth is his footstool. This is about Jesus. And so I present it to you afresh and again. Behold the Son of God. Behold the Jesus Christ who loves unconditionally, who shows grace to those who don't deserve it, who meets sinners and invalids where they are 
with forgiveness and love. He meets us exactly at that same place. That though you might not be invalid, though you might not be waiting outside a pool for it to start bubbling, your sin is deep. Your rebellion is far. What will you trust in your life? What will you put your hope into? Will it be empty things? Or will it be the Son of God? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word. We thank you most of all for your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, and his wonderful example to us, Lord, his death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection from the dead to conquer death and give us life. And Lord, we celebrate and we ask, Lord, that again you would work on our hearts, you would show us him and his wonder. You would cleanse us, Lord, of these empty things that we have held on to, these things that cannot save, these things that are truly worthless and point us to the only one who can. We also thank you now as we come to celebrate in each baptism, Lord, Lord, that you would give us much grace and mercy now as we do so in your name. Amen. Alright, so we turn now to the moment, I suppose some of you will be waiting for, maybe all of us. Um, just a word about baptism as we come to it. So the baptismal font's at the back there, it's that wooden box. I don't know why, it's such a weird design, but that's where it is. Um, so what will happen now is, uh, you guys will sing a song while we go get changed and hop in the pool. And then you can all turn around and come stand there and watch. That's just the procedure. Um... But about baptism, why we do it, or uh, why we practice it, especially the way we do as Baptists. Um, in Matthew 28, Jesus commands to go and make disciples and baptize in his name, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, first of all, it's a command of Jesus that we are to obey. And the way we understand it, especially from the scriptures, that uh, we only baptize believers. That means those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, um, because the sign is that of believers. In fact, the word baptism carries the, the, the idea of immersion and uh, being fully sort of immersed and also it carries the idea of an entrance right into the church. And from the scriptures we know that those who are part of the church are only those who believe. So, we only baptize believers. We only baptize those who profess Jesus Christ and we do it only as a sign, as a symbol. There's no power in the baptismal pool. In fact, the only salvation that is here is the faith which Anik proclaims. Uh, this is just a symbol and an obedience. So we practice the symbol as full immersion. So Anik will be fully dipped and come out. That uh, symbol is of entering and also exiting, but also of life and death. Of Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection, and also of what we will follow. And so we practice it in those ways, um, which is also nice. You know, it's a nice hot day, so we get to take a swim. No, not quite. Uh, so that's why we practice it in that way. So it's a, a special event, especially for us as a church, because it's also a way of unique saying to the people of God that I am one of you, I am part of you, and uh, I desire to be with you as well. So that's a wonderful thing that we can celebrate together. All right, so now I'm going to ask if Anik will come forward and just share a brief uh, testimony of what the Lord has done for her. Um, I feel honored to stand before you today. To be honest, I felt a bit nervous when Chris mentioned I had to speak. (laughs) Sorry. 
Over the past few months, I've left this building feeling encouraged or informed or enlightened every time. So I value this opportunity to speak to you because I'm fully aware of the potential it holds to influence your thoughts. As soon as you found to hope you desire everyone to have it. A few Sundays ago, and um, by no luck, again this morning, Chris mentioned um, that we should take great comfort in our inability to change people's hearts. I take comfort in my inability because God is able. If it is his will to enlighten, inform, or encourage you today, it will be so. Immediately, even though it doesn't look this way now, I felt more at ease testifying. My next concern was the confusion on what to say. How can I put to words something that goes beyond understanding? Add to that the fact that I am new to true faith. But I thank God who let me realize that in Christ, truth stays true, regardless of my earthly, man-made restrictions, such as uncertainties and my youth. About a year ago, I was involved in an accident which changed my circumstances. I'm trying to swallow. Sorry. Chris warned me he's going to put tissues here. He <laughs> did. Oh, okay. He kept his word. I was involved in an accident. Um, it changed my circumstances quite drastically. I had to discontinue my studies. I returned home, and for months my days were accompanied by fear of death. Suddenly my superficial relationship with God did not have the necessary depth to answer to these dark thoughts, difficult questions, and at times hopelessness. I felt restricted, unable to set goals, unable to see the possibility of a future, unable to dream. I faced an identity crisis because my focus was on myself. By grace, with the guidance of devout Christian members um, of this church, particularly prayer, Bible study and attending church, I was led to seek for answers in God and to gain trust in him. It was then that God made me realize that my inability is the fundamental reason I am standing here ready and eager to proclaim that I need a savior, that I need Jesus. God showed me that hope is found in this fact. We are placed on this temporary earth to experience whatever is necessary, although at times might seem devastating, cruel or confusing for our salvation. I would like to quote St. Paisios. So in every test, let us say, thank you, my God. This was needed for my salvation. I found and keep finding my new identity in Christ. I learned that I am the, not the main character of my own testimony. My testimony is not even about me. It's about Christ. It's always been about Christ. And it will always be about Christ. Even though my testimony is not about me, it is for me. And it is also for you, by grace. Thank you for sharing this day with me.
Alright, so we're going to go get changed. Um, you guys can sing a song. And when you're done, you can turn towards the baptismal font. Cool. Make you stand.